0: You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Well, apparently, uh, to your surprise, pastors need vacations too. And uh, I figured out that there's a way to gauge uh, whether a pastor had a good vacation or not. When I got back from staring at the Gulf waters down in Florida for about a week, um, you know how your phone, uh, iPhone in my case, uh, will tell you how much uh, time you've been on your phone the previous week and whether it went up or whether it went down? Well, I've reached a whole new record. Uh, When I got back off vacation, my phone said that my cell phone usage for the previous week had went down 75%. That! That is a good vacation, because I'm going to tell you folks, folks, all I did was sit on the beach and eat. That's all I did. I mean, that was my goal going in, goal accomplished. Turn to Job chapter one, Job chapter one. So back when I was walking through the book of James, James talks about the patience of Job. And on that particular sermon, I got a whole lot of questions. And it was not about James, it was about Job. And um, I got quite a few emails, had quite a few conversations. I love that, by the way. Anytime you've got a question, anytime you've wrestled with something I'm saying or maybe it didn't make sense, my door is wide open. We can talk all you want to talk. Um, but it was at that point, um, God said, let's, let's go to the book of Job. Now, we're not going to walk through this whole book over the next several weeks. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about some success stories, some stories in the Old Testament where God did an amazing, miraculous work. These are comeback stories that we're going to look at today and In the next three weeks. We're going to look at Job today, and then we're going to look at Hezekiah, we're going to look at Elijah, and we're going to look at a guy by the name of Gideon. And we're just going to take a week and look at those different profiles. But today we want to look at the book of Job. And let's pick it up, Job chapter 1, let's pick it up at verse 6. And this just kind of drops us into the story here, but this is the, the key Moment of the book of Job. I just want to say welcome to all those that are here today. If you're a guest today, we're especially glad that you're here. We would love to connect with you. For those that are watching online, we're glad that you've tuned in this morning. Job chapter 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth. And from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? If you underline in your Bible or highlight, that would be a good sentence to underline. Does Job fear God for no reason? We thank you for your provision and for your goodness and for your grace. Father, I'm thankful that the gospel found me. And Father, I'm thankful for the conviction that you brought into my life at age 16. And I realized for the first time in my life that it wasn't all about me. And for the first time in my life, I found peace. For the first time in my life, I began to realize that I had purpose and Lord, that was all a gift of your hand at that moment. I put my faith in you. And follow, all down through these years, just as we just sung, you have been faithful over and over. Not just to me, but a whole host of people all over the world. Even those who don't believe in you. Father, even those who are far from you. Even those who deny that you even exist. Father, you still are faithful and you still bless because you're a good Father. But Lord, this morning we have to wrestle again with what we just sung, that you are perfect in all of your ways towards us. Lord, I, there's been times in my life that I didn't believe that. And Father, I wonder if there are people here this morning that, that don't believe that because of what they're going through, because of their circumstances. So Father, as we walk through your word, we, we pray that you give us insight and guidance. Um, Father, the change of heart that needs to occur in each one of us, that's a work of your hand. So, Father, we ask that you would work inside of each of us this morning, some for salvation, some for clarity, some, Father, to restore joy and peace. So whatever is needed here today, Father, provide it by your mighty hand. We ask it in the powerful name of Christ. Amen. I have kind of a serious question to ask you right off the bat. Have you ever had a complaint against God? Now, you know, as you've been around the church, any at all, you may have those complaints but you don't voice them. Because sometimes we're worried about what other people might think, but the reality is if we're all transparent and honest, there's been times that we have some complaints against God and it also then is tied to whatever journey we're walking on this planet seems like everything that we uh, look up now, seems like everything we purchase has a five-star or two-star or three-star or half-star rating associated with it. I would dare say, if I had to guess, that just this week you've probably looked at some reviews of some product, whether it be a, a grill or some tires or some perfume. I mean, it's crazy how much information we have at the tips of our fingers to see if a product is actually good or not. Maybe you spent some time giving some replies back to a manufacturer about how well their product did and oftentimes we find ourselves finding it much easier to complain when something doesn't work than giving someone feedback when it does. Think about how much of your time is spent looking at those reviews. If you're looking at a product that has 5,000 reviews and 3,000 of those reviews are half star or one star, you typically start looking at other products. But let me ask you this question. Have there been times in your life where everything was lined up, where you had all the resources you needed, you had enough money in the bank to pay all your bills and actually have some left over, your job was going well, your family was thriving, your marriage was doing great, and at that moment on that mountaintop you were giving God five stars You're doing awesome, God. Everything's great. I love you. I I adore you. I worship you. Oh, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to get in God's word. And and man, I'm going to walk out my faith. But I don't know if you've spent much time in the mountains. I love the mountains. I love hiking in the mountains. And here's what I found on some of these long hikes that I've been on. Is I spend a whole lot of time going up and going down, but there's not a whole lot of time spent on the pinnacle of whatever mountain I just went up. If you ever notice how the valley floors are much longer than the top of the mountain. Well, that's a good, well, illustration of life itself. Those moments of pure elation where everything is working out according to our hopes and dreams seem to be rather short-lived. And it seems as though we're either getting ready to come across the top of the mountain or go off into a valley. And some of you find yourselves this morning in the deepest part of the deepest valley you've ever been in. And right now at this moment, you're giving God about a half star because that's what we typically do, including myself. When our our circumstances are good, God, you're the greatest ever. When our circumstances are not so good and we're hurting, we have a lot of life questions, we tend to do what? We tend to blame God, doubt God. We, We tend to believe that God is somewhere off running the universe and has forgotten about us. It's in those moments in the valleys where We look around and because we don't see our circumstances changing on the time frame in which we have set before God, then we begin to have some really deep questions about whether God even loves us at all. Folks, this is the book of Job. We're gonna fly over the book of Job at about 35,000 feet. We're, We're just gonna hit the high spots this morning. But what Job is gonna deal with is this question. What should we do in the gap between our suffering and God's seeming silence. Are you there this morning? Maybe you've been there. Maybe, maybe you're on the mountain this morning. Maybe things have lined up. Things are going great. But trust me, you can look back at some times when it wasn't going so good. Well, this sermon is for you. Maybe for you this morning, you're in the valley. Maybe you're in the descent into this place and you don't know what the outlook is going to be. You don't know where the end is. You don't know how long this is going to last. What do we do? when we're in the middle of that suffering. And it seems like God doesn't really care. We don't know who authored the book of Job. The book of Job is a prized piece of just liter- literary genius. This book has so much in it, it's rather hard to read at points. But we don't know who wrote this book and we don't know the date of this book. So if we don't know the author, oftentimes we don't know the date. And the thing about Job, when we read the book, we, It seems to indicate that this is a very, very old, old book. As a matter of fact, many theologians believe that this is the oldest book in the entire canon as far as the time in which it was set. Job, I believe, was a literal person. And I believe that Job suffered in a literal, very literal way, which we're going to look at in just a moment. The first part of this book is narrative. It's a story. And that story shifts scenes. The first scene is going to be on earth. And we're going to learn a little bit about Job and his background and his life. And then almost immediately, the scene is going to shift into the throne room of God. And we're going to have a story play out in the throne room of God that is going to directly affect Job's life. And then the story is going to shift back to Job. But then from chapters, chapter 2, verse 11, all the way to chapter 38, we have poetry. And sometimes that's what poses a great difficulty in reading all of those chapters because it gets really deep and it's very emotionally driven. Poetry in the Bible, and we have a lot of it, is driven by emotions. And we're going to see Job at the deepest, deepest place of his existence. Maybe you're suffering right now, and maybe you're thinking the same way Job was thinking. Job was thinking that God was apathetic, indifferent, the reason Job thought that is because this scenario doesn't change, it gets worse. And not only does it get worse, but week after week after week. We don't know how long, how much time transpired in the book of Job, I've tried to figure that out. It could be weeks, it could be months, I don't know. But what I do know is that as day leads into day and week leads into week, this man's suffering gets worse and worse and worse. So Job, in his mind and in his thinking, says, well, God must be apathetic. If God is altogether powerful and he's altogether loving, if God controls the universe, then where is he in my suffering? That's a pretty good question, isn't it? Well, maybe he's just blind. Maybe he's not aware. Or maybe he simply doesn't care. This is when we begin to downgrade God. When we have these questions in the middle of our suffering, if we don't have something to anchor our life, often the result is bitterness, and often the result is I am done. I'm done with church, I'm done with the Bible, I'm done with praying, I'm done. So let's pick it up with verse one, and let's learn a little bit about Job, because there's some things you need to know about Job. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. We, we call him Job, but the Hebrew pronunciation of his name is actually Eob. That's the Hebrew pronunciation. but well, I'm not going to use that because, well, it's awkward. And that, was, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. So what do we learn about Job? We found out that Job was a righteous man. We find out that Job was a man who put his faith in God. We find out that Job feared God, reverenced God, honored God, and worshipped God. But that's not all we learn. Look at verse 2. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And this man was greatest of all the people of the East. So not only do we find out that that Job was a righteous man who loved God, we also find out that Job was a wealthy man. Now, When you read all these numbers about sheep and donkeys and camels, it may not mean a lot to us, but in his culture, this man was wealthy. This guy is the Bill Gates or the Elon Musk of his day. Everybody knew who Job was. And when they saw Job, what they knew about Job is that Job is stinking wealthy. He's got all that he needs. He's not only got a beautiful family, was strapping sons and daughters but he's got all that he could ever want in this life. But notice what else we learn. Look at verse 5. And then when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, them being his children. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So we find out that Job is a righteous man. We find out that Job is wealthy. But we also find out that Job takes care of his family not only physically, but spiritually. <clears throat> so we can summarize this. Job is a good guy. Job is a straight up, honest guy and that God has blessed him abundantly and he has a whole lot of material wealth. Now the scene moves into the throne room of God. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also come among them. This may shock you, But when we read through Scripture, both Old and New Testament, we find out something very amazing and unique, that Satan actually has access to the throne room of God. And and when you look at Satan, and Satan being the accuser, Satan being the, the evil one that walks upon this earth, Satan being the one who is the liar, the destroyer, the killer, that's him. That every time we find him in the throne room of God, you know what he's doing? He's accusing the righteous. Lying, accusing, tearing down. That's what he does. So here is Satan in the throne room of God. And Satan hears God say, hey, I know you're wandering upon the earth and I know you're the destroyer. Have you ever considered my guy, my guy right over here, Job? Have you ever thought about him? You know, he's righteous. He worships me. He loves me. He's devoted to me. His family is devoted to me. And then Satan answered verse nine. Does Job fear God for no reason? And the reason I ask you to underline because this is a critical, critical moment in the book of Job. So here's Satan and God having a conversation, and Satan, in his sheer ignorance, because make no mistake about it, God is sovereignly in control. God completely knows every aspect of every part of the universe, and Satan is going to enter into a challenge with God Himself. That's not wise. So Satan says to God, hey, you know know why Job worships you? Do you know why Job is devoted to you? Do you know why Job worships you? He doesn't do it for no reason at all. He does it because of the stuff. He does it because of the things you've given him. Now here's Satan's argument. Satan's argument is this. God, you have blessed him, you've given him animals, and you've given him money, and you've given him family, and that's why he's motivated to worship you. If you take all that away, if you get rid of all that, guess what he will do? God, he will curse you to your face. As soon as he starts suffering, as soon as he loses his wealth, as soon as he loses his family, then he's going to curse you, because what Satan is arguing is that Job is more in love with his stuff than he is God. Did you get that? Satan is arguing that Job loves his stuff. And yeah, he'll love God as long as he gets stuff. Now, that's not a foreign concept at all, not in the Old Testament or the New Testament. All through the Old Testament, we have this concept of you get what you deserve. You sow and you reap. If you're good, God will bless you. If you're bad, well, you're going to stand under the judgment of God. That's not just an Old Testament concept. It's a New Testament concept as well. That there were people just seeking the blessings of God. And Job says, or uh, Satan says that Job is one of those people. So take it all away. And notice what he'll do. He'll curse you. God says, okay, I'm going to give him over into your hand. He's going to allow Satan, I want you to notice this. God allows Satan to destroy all of Job's wealth. Now notice this, Satan does not have the power over Job until what? Until God allows him to have that space, which means that Satan, to this very day, can only do what God allows him to do, and one day, God will destroy him, and you need to understand that. Satan and God are not on the same same level here. This is not two gods fighting with one another. This is a holy God who calls the shots with everything in the universe, including Satan. So Satan, you can, you can go ahead and play your little game. Let's see how this works out. Verse 13, now there was a day when his sons, Job and his sons and daughters were eating and drinking and wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the ox were plowing and the donkeys were feeding beside them and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the service with the edge of the sword and I'm the only one who've escaped. Now if you read all these verses, here's what you're going to find out. Servant after servant comes and every one of those servants have bad news. And the bad news is this. Hey, Job, you've lost all your servants. Hey, Job, you've lost all your animals. Hey, Job, you've lost all your money. Hey, Job, you've lost all of your family. Every one of your children are dead. Talk about the baddest of all bad days. Job's just had it. when When God pulls back his hand and allows Satan to do his dirty work upon Job, Job loses everything. And I think this all happened in a very... Very short period of time. So now what's Job going to do? was was Job's faith in his wealth and his animals and his prestige and his power? Look at verse 20 in chapter 1. It says, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. These are all signs of mourning. And he falls on the ground and he blamed God. It says he worshiped. It says, and then he says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord has given, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. What? Can we all all just admit here, if you've you've been following Jesus any amount of time, can we all just admit to ourselves and admit to God that in that same place, we might not have responded the same way? Because I haven't. Oftentimes, my prayers in those places sound more like accusations towards God rather than worship. Job has lost everything, but wait, there's more. We shift back to the throne room of heaven. Satan comes back before God. They have pretty much the same dialogue, and Satan says, well, you know, okay, God, you, went, you won this round, <laughs> apparently, for now, but if, if you'll let me strike him down physically, if you'll let him suffer some pain He's going to curse you to your face. We're going to to find out who Job really honors and who Job loves. So once again, God allows Satan to strike Job and strike his health. And I I did quite a bit of reading on this to try to get my arms around just how bad Job was suffering. All I can say to you is, is that covering his entire body was these weeping, infected sores that were extremely painful. He's probably running a fever. He's probably feeling like every muscle in his body is torn out of place. He's probably almost completely naked, if not completely naked, just trying to find some comfort. He has no appetite, he cannot sleep, he cannot rest because of the fever and the sores. His body is literally rotting uh, commentators indicate that more than likely, if this is the disease they think it is, more than likely you could have smelled Job before you ever got to him. And Job is sitting in, a, in, a, in an ash dump. He's sitting at the landfill. He's sitting at the community landfill, naked, oozing sores, in complete utter pain, and the only way he can find any comfort is to take a piece of broken pottery and scrape the sores on his body. The man is miserable. If there's ever been a time that Job is going to curse God, now would be the time. His wife has some advice for him. (laughs) Man, don't you laugh. Man, do not laugh right here. (laughs) Don't you laugh. She says to Job, Do you still hold on to your integrity? In other words, Job, are you still trying to honor God? Here, Job, here's some advice for you. Curse God and die. Now, let's not be too hard on Job's wife. The man that she loves is suffering. She's suffering. Remember, she lost her family too. Maybe, maybe Job's wife, maybe her response is closer in line with what you've been saying to God than than what Job has been saying. Maybe you're just angry with God. Been there. Maybe you want God to come down and say, I want you to come down here and I want you to tell me why it is this is happening. Hey, Job, uh, just die. (laughs) That's your only way out. Listen to what Job says to her. You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. In other words, you should know better. And this is what he says. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? That word translated into disaster or trouble. And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. You know what? You know what Job says to his wife? And it it's profound. This is profound. This will be another great place to underline in your Bible. Job says, honey, should we accept all the good from God? And then when things don't go so well, we reject God and, and everything that we know to be true about him? Honey, should we, should we just accept all the money and all the animals and all the prestige? But when things don't go the way we want it to, we, we're just going to throw God out with the, like the baby with the bathwater. We're just going to toss him aside. Now, this is where it gets really real with us, folks, because this is exactly what I am prone to do and what maybe you're prone to do, that in the moment of that pain and that suffering, maybe you're not sitting in an ash heap. Maybe you're sitting in the ash heap of a broken marriage. Maybe you're sitting in the ash heap of a job that you thought you had for the next year and you just got your pink slip. Or maybe you're sitting in the ash heap of some kids that you raised right that have now departed. Or maybe you're sitting in the ash heap of not having enough income to pay your bills and you don't know how to pay them. There's all kinds of ash heaps to be sitting in, but in those moments, we can be sitting there, and if we're not very careful, we can just get so angry with God that we want to pull him down and just shake him. And we don't say that because we're, you know, we think it would be a bad thing to say that out loud. Maybe we need to say it out loud. Just look at what David says in the Psalms. Talk about raw emotion. Job says to his wife, how can we accept the good without also accepting the hardships. Here's what Job is trying to tell his wife. Honey, God doesn't owe us anything. Did you know that God doesn't need you? (laughs) I have to remind myself of this in ministry. God doesn't need me preaching. He doesn't need me as serving this church. God can do his will and accomplish his will, whether I'm part of it or not, and the same goes for you. God doesn't owe you money in your bank. He doesn't owe you a car in the driveway. He doesn't owe you a perfect job or a perfect marriage or anything else. God doesn't owe you anything. If In fact, if we got what we deserve, we'd be suffering apart from him forever if it wasn't for Jesus and what he did. So no, God doesn't owe you anything. So he says to his wife, honey, everything that we've gotten was out of God's good grace. God is a good father and he gave us abundance, but he's also, now he's taking us into a season of suffering. Are we not going to accept that? It's almost as though that Job knew this verse. He couldn't have known it because Paul wrote it many, many years later. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, he says, for our light and momentary troubles... That's an amazing thing for Paul to say with all he went through. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. All, What does he mean by all? All the pain, all the suffering, that God is up to something. Just as much as he's up to something in the good, he's up to something in the bad. Job tells his wife, shall we not accept both? from a holy God that we know loves us. Job has lost everything, and he is suffering tremendously, but what happens next, I think is really, even takes his suffering to a whole nother level, because now, Job is gonna have some friends. Isn't it good to have friends? (laughs) Well, not these kind of friends. Because for the next many chapters, we have a dialogue, it's all poetry, of three friends of Job who are going to come into Job's life while Job is sitting in the dump, while Job is scraping the sores, while Job is literally dying in front of them, and they're going to offer some advice. We're not going to walk through all those chapters. I just want to kind of summarize what was happening here. These three friends, and eventually there's going to be a fourth friend who shows up, But these three friends, the predominant whole center of the book is about these three friends and Job talking. And here's the help that the three friends have for Job. They they come to Job while he's suffering, and they say to Job, hey, Job, you you know why you're suffering? It's your fault, bro. You did this. You have invited the judgment of God upon your head, and those sores that are on your body is nothing more than the judgment of God upon you for your sins. Wow, so helpful. They're telling Job it's his fault. They're telling Job he needs to repent. And all through these chapters and all through these dialogues, Job is trying to go back in his mind and try to come up with something he's done wrong to to, to, to justify this pain. He can't come up with anything. Remember, God said that Job was what? A righteous man. God tells us in that courtroom In that throne room, we're saying that Job is a righteous man. The suffering that he is enduring is not because Job is a bad guy. It's because we live in a broken world, and there's a guy named Satan who loves to kill, steal, and destroy. So we have these three friends. In chapter after chapter, verse after verse, we have dialogue between Job and these three friends. And all through these dialogues, one of the things that jumps off the page to me is how that Job wrestles with deep, profound questions. When you're on the mountaintop and everything's going well, you don't wrestle with big life questions, do you? When you're on the mountaintop and everything's going well, you don't think about afterlife. You don't think about, hey, why is this happening to so-and-so? You just glow and enjoy the moment. But it's when we're in that valley, when we wrestle with the core life questions, who am I? Who am I, really? Who is God? Where is he in all of this? Job asks questions in in Job chapter 14. There's questions all through that. We won't turn over there. There's a point there where Job asks the question, what happens to me when I die? Now, that would be a question that Job would ask because he thinks he's right near death, and probably so. There are other times where Job wrestles with big life questions like, what is the purpose of this? What is the purpose of my life? Is the purpose of my life to sit in a dump and bleed to death and suffer? Maybe you've had questions like that. Now these friends, you need to understand their background and why they're saying what they're saying. The predominant theme in the Old Testament, as I've already said, and in the New Testament and in our life today, is that if you do good things for God, God will do good things for you. So the, the pattern that these men had in their mind was, is that there's no possible way that a good holy God who loves us would allow a man to suffer unless he had done something to deserve it. So the pattern in their mind is, Job, you're wrong. And they beat him down over and over. I would offer to you that the suffering that Job experienced at the hands of these friends were as bad, was as bad or equal to the sores on his body. Because it goes on and on and on. And in their mind, there's no way that Job could be suffering unless he had done something wrong. And this is the pattern throughout the Old Testament. You reap what you sow. You get what you deserve. You do good things for God and God will bless you. Have you ever heard this? Maybe somebody said this to you. I've had it said to me, maybe you get a new car or maybe you get that new job promotion. Somebody will come up put their arm around you. Oh, you must be in good with God. It makes cold chills go down my spine. Oh, you, you, God must be tight for you to be able to get that. Well, the same thinking was in Jesus' ministry. John chapter five, John chapter six, Jesus performs an incredible miracle where he feeds about 10,000 plus people with a few loaves of bread and a few fish. After that, there's a crowd of people that keep following him everywhere they go. Now, on the one hand, they could be people who really love Jesus and want to learn about him and become disciples. That's one option. But we find out there's another option. The reason those crowds keep hanging around after Jesus performs that miracle is because they want more fish and bread. (laughs) It really is that simple. Hey, can you, can you do that again? Maybe we won't have to cook and go find our own food. If you could just you know turn some stones or something into bread like Moses did back in the wilderness, that'd be awesome, Jesus. Well, Jesus has about enough of that, and in John chapter six, he confronts that crowd, and here's what he says. He says to them, unless you are willing to eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. Now, that's a strong statement, right, to a bunch of Jewish people. And they're like, is he talking about like, cannibalism here? What's he doing? That's not what he was talking about. He was saying, unless you are consumed with me, not with what I can perform, not with what I can give you, unless you are consumed with me, you have no part with me. Folks, that translates to right now. If anything else is taking precedence in your life, if even the perks of Christianity, the good stuff that comes with naming Jesus, if that's all it is in your faith, if it's all about that, Jesus says to you, you have no part with me. you got to be in love with him, not the blessings he provides. And thank God that he provides them. Listen, we got to be more in love with Jesus than the heaven we're going to one day. i got to be more in love with Jesus than the golden streets that I'm promised. i got to be more in love with Jesus than the pearly gates. Look, when I get to heaven, it's not going to be about the pearly gates or the golden streets. I want to see a risen Savior face to face. That is my only desire. If you have any other desire, Jesus may very well be saying to you, you have no part with me. We have the same problem today. There are people who continuously go to church out of legalism, not because they love God or love Jesus, because they feel obligated to do it. And You may be surprised to find out that there are people who go to church to check a box so that God will give them something good. Well, Lord, I showed up today. Now, give me my job raise or my, give, me my, give, me, give me my marriage fix or give me my, my fix for my kids or my grandkids. I showed up today. I did you a favor, God. I, put, I even went so far as to put some money into the offering. God, I have shown up. What are you going to do for me now? Jesus would say to you, you have no part with him. Job has some friends that can't see any other possibility here other than the fact that he sinned. So Job's friends are going to speak on behalf of God into Job's life. They're going to speak to Job. The only problem is they're not speaking on behalf of God. They're speaking on behalf behalf of themselves and their own culture and what they've learned, and that's a big problem. Folks, what I want you to understand through all these middle chapters of this back and forth between Job and his friends, here's what I want you to get from this. You need to be very careful who you take counsel from when you're in the valley. Wouldn't it be just like Satan in this moment to bring three friends into Job's life to just drive him deeper into the ashes? Be careful what you read when you're in the valley. Be careful who you listen to counsel from. Be careful of someone who comes into your life and says, well, you know it's all your fault. Maybe, maybe not. Just because they're saying it doesn't make it true. Would you like to know when I hear some of the worst (laughs) You want to know when I hear some of the worst counsel for families? I've done a lot of funerals down through the 18 years of ministry. And I go to the view in with the family and there's this one that sticks out. This happened multiple times but there's this one funeral that sticks out in my mind of a a young wife who lost her husband wasn't here was in another town and it was a tragic accident and um, families lined up. I remember the, the teenage kids are lined up. You know how the the viewing goes. People come through and shake hands. And <clears throat> I've already went through greed family. I'm just kind of hanging around talking to people. And I'm over here talking, and the wife is kind of right behind me. And I'm partially listening to the person I'm talking to, but I'm really listening to the conversation that's happening behind me. And there's a person in that line who is speaking to this now widow, young widow with young teenagers in the home, and they're giving her advice about what God says about this moment. And it was all I could do to not get all up in that conversation because this woman was absolutely driving this young lady into the ground. The same thing that the friends are saying to Job, she would say, well, you know, I I know this is a tragic situation, but man, if you'll just repent, if you'll just just get right with the Lord, it'll make it all better. I want to choke that person. I'm just being honest with you. (laughs) Yeah, your pastor thinks like that sometimes. I just want to choke the life out of that person. Let me tell you how much bad, listen, in in those funeral home settings, I have heard some of the worst counsel from church-going people that I've ever heard in my life. Some of of y'all just need to stop talking at that funeral line. If you don't know what to say, just say, I love you, give them a hug, and walk on. Because your theology is not biblical, and you're hurting that family. You're hurting them desperately bad. This goes for marriage counseling. I've heard people give counsel to couples that are going through a hard time and it is ungodly, it is wrong, and it's going to destroy that marriage all while they're thinking they're doing the right thing. And it wouldn't be just like Satan that in those moments when you're in the deepest valley that Satan will send some, some messengers by your way and they'll use God's name but they'll not be saying what God says. Be careful where you take counsel from especially when you're suffering. So let's, let's get to the answer. You want to you hear the answer? Turn over to Job chapter 30, 38 is where we're going. Job 38. So after all these chapters of Job and these friends, in chapter 31, Job says, I'm done. I'm done talking. He finally come to the end of his discussion. He'd had all these friends he could have, but yet there's one more friend named Elihu, Elihu comes in and adds another two or three chapters of really bad advice for Job. Job doesn't even respond. Job is done. You ever got there? Job is so done, he don't even know what to say anymore. He doesn't even know what to speak. He doesn't have anything else to say. He doesn't want to hear any more words. He's done. So Elihu gives all of his advice. And then at chapter 38, it's time for God to speak. Now, all through these chapters, Job has been saying, God, I need to hear from you. I need you to come down here. Because at one point, I think it's in chapter 19, Job says to God, God, come down here and let's have a trial. And you put me on trial. You put me on the stand and you question me 10 ways to Sunday. He doesn't say that, but you understand. You question me and show me where I've, where I've went wrong here. Well, God's been silent for a very long time. He's heard from his friends who were not really his friends at all. Now it's time for God to speak. God is going to speak some loving, caring words into Job's life. Let's take a look at them. Verse 1:38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind: Who is it that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Let me let me update that. Here's what God says: Who is it that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? Is that the comfort we were thinking we were gonna hear? Um, yeah, that's kind of harsh, God. I mean, this guy's kind of beat down. He's, he's bleeding. He's still in the ash heap. And he's just took a beat down from his friends. And then God shows up and says, hey, uh, who's been testing me with ignorance? Oh, was it you, Job? Now remember, God sees right past the circumstances and sees right into Job's heart. Not only does God know every word that Job has said, but he also knows the intents and motivations of Job's heart. Then he says this, verse 3. Dress for action like a man. God says, Job, man up. Wow. He says, I will question you, and you will make it known to me. For the next few chapters, you know what happens? Over and over again, God asks Job question after question. Just in this chapter, there's 24 questions from God in 41 verses. So what's God up to here? Is God now gonna, gonna beat his righteous servant down even more, of course not. But God is gonna teach Job something in the lowest point of his life, and his mind's gonna get blown. Look at verse four, he said, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined this measurements? Surely, Job, you know. In other words, God's saying, hey, Job, Uh, were you there when I spoke and hung the stars in the place? Hey, Hey, Job, were you there when I laid the foundation of the earth? Hey, Job, were you there when I put the oceans in place? And he goes on and he says, hey, Job, were you there when I created these vast beasts and put them in the oceans and put them on the dry land? Hey, Job, where were you? Because, Job, I know, I know because you've been demanding something of me. You're expecting something of me, but, Job, you need to understand something. There is a cosmic conflict going on. And Job, you see one minuscule part of this universe while I see the whole, and I'm in control of it all. It's almost as though you and I are looking through the keyhole of a door into an art gallery, and we look through that little keyhole, and we think we know what's best. We think we know what's supposed to happen. We think we know how our life is supposed to go, and then we take that little perspective and we thrust that on God and say, God, now you owe us what we're asking you for. And God says to Job, Job, you're looking through a keyhole. You have no idea. You have no idea what I'm up to or what I'm doing. Job, where were you? In other words, Job, your perspective is so small in the grand scheme of the work I'm doing in the world, I can't even begin to answer your questions. And if I did, you couldn't understand it. Listen, if God answered, if God came down and answered all of the whys of why your loved one passed away young in life, or if God were to come down and give you all the the reasons why you had to go through cancer. If God were to come down and give you the answers to the questions you've got, you don't have the capacity to even begin to understand what God is going to tell you. Because he sees the hole, you see a keyhole. You're looking at a travel brochure. God sees the universe and all of its beauty, all of its glory, and he controls every aspect of it. So Job, who are you? to demand of me that I do what you want. That's a a good thing to consider, isn't it? I think it's a healthy thing to consider. That in our limited understanding of life and what God is up to, we don't have the view that God has. We're only looking at what's directly in front of us. Whatever suffering you're in, you're looking at it. Job was looking at his suffering. And with the help of these friends, Job Questions a whole lot of things about God and about himself. And in all that questioning and in all that wondering and in all that tension and all that pain, you know what we don't see? We don't see Job really worshiping. We saw that at the beginning. We'll see it at the end. But in the middle, it's just altogether stress, worry, and tension because his eyes have come off of God and onto the problem. So, what should we do when our life is a wreck? And God is silent it seems distance. I think what Job would tell us is simply this. In the space between the suffering and the silence of God, what God asks of you is to simply trust him. Now you were probably looking for something much more profound right there, were you not? Oh, he's going to have like three points or five points it's going to help me with this. It's all going to come back to this single thing, this single idea, this single premise, trusting God. The broken marriage, the prodigal kids, the lack of resources, the loss of job, the loss of health. God is up to something in the good and in the not so good. And what he's asking you to do is to simply trust him. Job's great comeback because that's what we're talking about is great comeback. Job's great comeback is not, and hear me clearly, it's not the restoration of his money, his kids, his home, and his service. Because at the end of the book, we all focus on that chapter, that last paragraph. God just pours it all into Job's life. So if we're not careful, when we get to the end of the book of Job, here's what we begin to think, the same thing the friends were thinking. If we do good things, and we worship God, and we do all these, then God's going to give us all this stuff. No, he doesn't owe you anything. Job's great comeback was not getting all of his stuff back. Job's great comeback was this. First of all, God gave him perseverance. The great gift that God gave him through this whole book was perseverance. Job should have died. Job should have died right there in that ash pit. If it wasn't for God's provision, he would have certainly, certainly died. God gave him perseverance. God is going to give you perseverance in whatever valley you're in. Not only that, God gave Job perspective. That's what we need. In the, in the moment of our suffering, we need perspective, a much bigger perspective, a much bigger view. You see, you and I are going to live 80, maybe 100 years of God, allows you to live that much here on this earth. You know what Solomon describes that as? A vapor, steam, here today, gone tomorrow. In the grand scheme of what God is doing, you're here for one little little blip of time. And to all of our surprise, the universe does not revolve around you and I. So God is going to give you perseverance, but he's also going to give you perspective. And that perspective is, is that this holy God who's been in control all through the Old Testament, all through the New Testament, bringing all things together for his purposes, we can trust him. So God is going to give us perseverance. He's going to give us perspective. But you know what else he's going to give us? And this is the greatest thing. This, this, this is the great comeback. This is what Job got. Job got God's presence. That's what Job got. And you've got it even on even a much more profound level. You've got God's presence in the person of the Holy Spirit. If you are born again, God lives in you. The Bible says we are in Christ. Christ is in us. That's far better than what Job had. So what is the purpose of? of your pain and your struggle? I don't know, but I know you can trust God with it. How much longer is it gonna last? I don't know, but God's gonna be with you. Hey, how, how far is this gonna go? How much bad is it gonna get? I don't know, but God's gonna help you persevere. That's not the answers you were looking for, but that's the answers that you've got to cling to. You know, we don't have to look any further than the greatest event in human history, to show how God takes horrific things and turns them into something beautiful. Jesus arrested in Gethsemane, accused of crimes he didn't commit, is beaten, spat upon, cursed. He carries a cross outside the walls of Jerusalem, and they hang him on a cross for the whole world to see. And quite frankly the world when they think of you and your faith in Jesus they think you're crazy because why would you ever want to follow a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth who was put to death by the Romans because that's all they see. They don't see anything more than that. You and I see something totally different. What we see in that moment on the cross is him bearing the sins of all humanity and it's in that place that I found my purpose. It's in that place that I I found why I'm here. It's in that place in my faith in Jesus that gave me a reason to live. It's at age 16 that I had deep questions. I was absolute in rebellion. I had my own life and I thought the world revolved around me. And it was a moment in time where my parents prayed for me and prayed for me that I came to the realization that the world is much bigger than me. And there's things going on in the world that I can't control. But there's a God who is in control. And there's a God who is welcoming me into a relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. And it was at that moment when I surrendered to Him that I finally found what true life really is. And I've been walking this journey, still don't have all my questions answered. Still don't. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. Are you okay with that? But in that moment on the cross, God took something very ugly, very evil, very difficult, and very painful, and he turned it into something beautiful. What is that beauty that I get to be, and you get to be sons and daughters of the Most High? We get to live on this planet with purpose and meaning, and one day we get to go be with him and live out our days in perfection and beauty, never to be separated again, never looking through a keyhole anymore, but seeing the fullness of God in that moment. I would dare say that there's some of you, you've never come to that place of faith. So suffering doesn't make any sense to you. Pain doesn't make any sense. Brokenness doesn't make any sense. Because in that lost place that you're in, all you have to rely on is you. How's that working out for you? It didn't work out very well for me. Maybe it's time to put your faith in a God who loves you, who will tell you the truth, and who will give you a purpose in which to live out. Fellow disciples of Jesus, let me, let me ask you, uh, how are you are rating God right now? If you're honest with him, be honest with him. Tell him. He already knows. Be honest with him in this moment as we get ready to sing here in this minute we pray. I want you to be honest with God. I want you to tell God, I'm rating you at about a high star right now. And I'm pretty upset with you. That's the beginning of God doing something in your life. Not answering all your questions. Tell him how you feel. You go back and read those Psalms of David and you find out a guy here he who's pretty upset with God and he, don't mind, he doesn't mind writing it down for generations to see. God can handle it. Be honest with him. Tell him how you feel and God's going to do something in your life. He's going to give you perseverance. He's going to give you perspective. He's going to give you the most of the thing you need most. That's his presence. Father, I thank you so much for the book of Job what it teaches us about suffering. And none of us like to suffer. None of us are seeking it out, but it's part of this journey of life that we're on. And it's going to continue to be part of this journey of life that we're on until we stand before you. Father, I, I would hope that the suffering for some of them here today who've never put their faith in you, that the suffering has grown to a point where all they hear is your voice. And that what is needed most now is that they put their faith in you. That they confess that they've made a mess of things and that they put their faith in you by believing that you did exactly what you said you would do. You came, you died, and you resurrected. I father that they would be willing to surrender all, to not keep control, but to give over control to you. And Father, there are some here today who are just quite angry with you they haven't said anything to anybody. They've got that smile on their face and, and they're telling everybody that they're good and everybody's fine, and everything's fine, when in fact it's not. And Father, they're about to give up on you, their faith, their marriage, their kids, their job. But ultimately, Father, they're about to give up on you. Father, what they need is perseverance. What they need is perspective. What they need is your presence Father call them to your side. I pray Father that they would express to you the deep things of their heart and father you could begin to heal that heart right where they are. We ask all this in Christ's name amen let's stand together in this worship. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon for more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church please check out our website hydepark.church or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist.